On final approach to Havana's Jose Marti International Airport, the Aeroflot Illusion IL-62M, with 69 people on board, descended below the clouds, and the pilot immediately was confronted with power lines between the plane and the runway. And the runway was close. The pilot attempted to pull the nose up to avoid the power lines, but the emergency maneuver was not enough. The plane clipped the power lines. The plane was so close and so low that the plane actually went under the lines and the steel reinforced cables severed the vertical stabilizer from the rest of the plane. The cables also damaged the wing flaps of the starboard wing. Rendered uncontrollable, the plane pitched sharply down and to the right, impacting the ground within seconds of contacting the power lines. The plane burst into flames, and though the rear of the fuselage was relatively intact, there were only two survivors. The investigation revealed serious errors by the crew. They had incorrectly set their altimeter, causing the plane to be lower than indicated by the plane's instruments, and they had not followed proper approach procedures. One investigator said the crew, quote, blatantly disregarded approach procedures. The weather was also tricky, with clouds obscuring the runway as the plane was on final approach. This wouldn't have been a problem for a crew properly using their instruments, but this crew was also faulted by investigators for being on a visual approach, not an IFR approach. Have you been counting the errors? An improper approach? An incorrect altimeter setting? And a visual instead of an IFR approach? Any one of these errors could have crashed the plane. Combined, the flight was seemingly destined to fail. And oh yeah, the crew had declared one of their engines was on fire just before the crash. This is Radar Contact Lost, the podcast. I'm your host, Dave Gorham. I'm a retired meteorologist with a career in the United States Air Force, commercial and broadcast weather forecasting with a specialty of aviation meteorology. I've provided weather support to Air Force One and to Marine One. I've briefed military and corporate flight crews. I've been both a television and radio broadcast meteorologist and have spent a large part of my career providing military and commercial weather support to clients in all parts of the world. I've created this podcast series to bring you interesting but tragic stories of airplane crashes that are either caused by the weather or those crashes when the weather is a contributing factor. Today's episode, when a Russian airliner flew into Cuban power lines, is the tragic tale of a commercial jetliner that clipped power lines and then crashed while attempting to land in Havana just a minute from the end of a 12-hour transatlantic flight. All 10 crew members and 57 of the 59 passengers perished. The date was May 27, 1977. What exactly happened on this day some 46 years ago? An airliner from one of the world's largest airlines clipping power lines? It sounds like a rookie mistake, and it seems impossible. How did or how could this happen? Unfortunately, there aren't many details. In this episode, the Radar Contact Lost team will examine what happened. I'll examine the crash of this Russian commercial airliner while taking a close look at the weather, the approach, and the altimeter. We'll look at the airline, the airport, and what the crew might have done that would have saved the lives of 67 people. 
And for the first time on Radar Contact Lost, one of our in-house experts will join us right here to talk about TERPS, Terminal Instrument Procedures, and how it was a factor in this crash. Aeroflot Flight 331 departed from Sheremetyevo International Airport outside Moscow, Russia, late Thursday night, May 26, in 1977. The large Russian airport opened in 1964 and is the home airport for Russia's national airline, Aeroflot, the largest airline in Russia. After departing from Sheremetyevo, the Aeroflot jetliner flew about three and a half hours southwest to Munich, Germany. The next leg was also about three and a half hours, maybe a little less, this time to Lisbon, Portugal. The third and final leg was a 12-hour overnight transatlantic flight to Havana, Cuba. Due to the length of this flight, a new crew took charge of Flight 331 in Lisbon, and they departed at 2.30 in the morning, local time. The 12-hour flight was uneventful. If the crew deviated from prescribed procedures in the cockpit prior to the Havana approach, it was not mentioned in the investigation's final report. However, the crew did make three critical mistakes as they began the approach to Havana. Why exactly these mistakes occurred is unknown. The plane was cleared by air traffic control to descend from 35,000 feet, then to 15,000 feet. In meters, that's from almost 10,700 meters down to just over 4,500 meters. Then they were cleared down to 3,000 feet, about 910 meters, and this is when the problems began. As any plane transitions from the International Air Traffic Control System and begins approaching the destination airport, one of the first things the crew does is tune into the ATIS frequency. That's A-T-I-S, which stands for Automatic Terminal Information Service. The ATIS is an automated message that is transmitted to all aircraft in the area of a particular airport. It includes critical airport information, such as the weather observation, including sky condition, visibility, temperature, wind direction, and speed. The ATIS would also include the active runway or runways, any airport equipment that is broken or out of service, etc., etc. Also, and important as it pertains to this accident, the altimeter setting is included as part of the ATIS. It's an important reminder to the crew to properly set the plane's altimeter to the local airport's barometer. The ATIS is updated with every new weather observation, typically once per hour. But if there is new information or rapidly changing weather conditions, the ATIS will be updated more frequently. Today, the ATIS is automated, including a lovely synthesized voice. And now that the ATIS is digitized and with the internet available in most cockpits, the ATIS information can be accessed by the crew at any time during the flight, not just a local radio frequency. Typically, the crew would access the ATIS at the top of the descent, so maybe 80 to 100 nautical miles, or about 148 to 185 kilometers from the destination. This way, the crew will know the active runway and can pull up the proper landing procedures with time to spare. In the old days, the ATIS was recorded by an air traffic controller in the tower, and the recording was broadcast on a specific frequency, 
When the captain or first officer tuned into the ATIS, a recording of the controller's voice would be heard, providing all the necessary information. This was likely the case in 1977 in most places in the world, but in Cuba in 1977, the pilot might have contacted the tower and talked to a controller directly. Once armed with all the pertinent and local airport information, the crew sets the altimeter to the new setting and begins the approach to the airport while getting the plane and the crew ready to land. Since I was just talking about the altimeter setting, this is probably a good time to explain what that is. And I think a good place to start is with the altimeter itself, the altitude meter, if you will. The altimeter is an instrument in the cockpit that is sensitive to atmospheric pressure and indicates to the flight crew the distance in feet of the airplane above the ground. Sounds straightforward, but like a watch that needs to be adjusted when changing time zones, an altimeter needs to be adjusted when changing pressure zones. Consider the different pressure zones that a transcontinental airplane flies through. Even flying from one side of the city to another, there can be a substantial difference in atmospheric pressure. If the altimeter is not adjusted to compensate, the plane can be either higher or lower than the pilot expects, or worse than the instrument indicates. Most pilots will learn these mnemonics early in their flight training. From high to low, look out below. From low to high, high in the sky. Meaning, if the pilot is flying from high pressure to low pressure, the altimeter will read higher than expected. In other words, the pilot can fly into the ground while thinking the airplane should be above the ground. This is why it's critical to properly set the plane's altimeter to each airport's reported altimeter setting. The altimeter setting is derived from a barometer at the airport, and there are several different types of barometers. In the old days, local pressure was measured by how high a column of mercury would rise in a glass column. This instrument was called a mercurial barometer, and it was standard equipment at an airport. The higher the pressure, the more the weight of the atmosphere would press down on mercury in a chamber, which would then force the mercury higher in the glass column. The mercurial barometer has been around since it was invented by an Italian physicist in 1643. The glass tube of a mercurial barometer is about three feet high, which may seem pretty high, but mercury is used because of its density. If water was used instead of mercury, the glass column of a mercurial barometer or of a water barometer would need to be 30 feet high. Isn't science great? Now, mercurial barometers are rare these days due to the toxicity of the mercury. But if you're of a certain age, you may remember pushing a small bubble of mercury across your kitchen table at home or perhaps across a science desk in school. That mercury at home may have come from a broken thermometer or from a blood pressure cuff or a thermostat, or of course, a home-style barometer with a small amount of mercury. In the old days, mercury in the home wasn't so uncommon, but if you still have these devices, you should replace them with digital equivalents and then properly dispose of the mercury. There are lots of online sources that can direct you on how to do this. Another type of barometer is called an aneroid barometer. This sealed chamber of air expands and contracts as the outside air pressure changes. If you have a weather instrument in your home that indicates stormy, 
change, fair, dry, or something similar, that's a form of an aneroid barometer. Before the digital barometers of today, aneroid barometers, often side-by-side -side with mercurial barometers, tracked the official airport pressure. The aneroid, specifically, was attached to a needle that would ink a line on a moving roll of graph paper. This was called a barograph, and it created a permanent record of the pressure so that if there was ever a need to go back in time and check the pressure from a particular time on a particular day, perhaps an aircraft accident as an example, the exact pressure could be found on this roll of paper. Before everything went digital, every airport weather station had a closet or a storeroom or a large file cabinet that had rolls and rolls of paper from the barograph. Each roll represented 30 days of continuous pressure readings. Part of my duties early in my weather career included mastering the delicate task of calibrating the mercurial barometer and swapping out the barograph paper roll at the first of every month, precisely at 12 a.m. And getting that mercurial perfectly calibrated was critical, as it directly affected how a pilot would land the airplane. Not so much of an issue on a sunny day, but at night or in stormy weather, it meant the difference between a perfect touchdown or a bumpy one, or perhaps worse. Today, barometers are digital. Gone is the hazard of a mercury spill, Gone are the paper rolls from the barograph, replaced now by a digital file of one type or another. Digital barometers use a microelectromechanical sensor, or an MEM, to measure pressure instead of an air chamber or a column of mercury. You'll find these digital sensors in smartphones and smartwatches too, not just at airports. A combination of digital sensors will allow your phone or watch to measure your altitude, predict the weather, indicate the temperature, as well as indicate your compass heading. Like any barometer, be sure to properly calibrate your altimeter watch or phone before using it for specific needs or activities. And to do this, refer to your owner's manual. Altimeters in commercial aircraft today are based on radar or radio waves that are emitted from an antenna on the underside of the plane and are called, not surprisingly, radar or radio altimeters. The sonic waves from the plane's radar device travel downward from the plane, bounce off the ground below, and return back up to the airplane where the time it takes that sonic wave to make a round trip is timed and then converted to a distance that indicates the plane's height above the ground. This technology has been around since the early days of World War II. Newer technology to help measure a plane's altitude include laser altimeters, which were similar to a radar altimeter, except the laser uses light rather than sound waves. And GPS can also be used to determine an aircraft's height above the ground, although GPS is not quite reliable or accurate enough to replace any of the other types of altimeters. Let's return to Cuba and our story. In the case of the Aeroflot aircraft, the plane was lower than the pilots expected, meaning they were flying from high pressure to low pressure. And this is borne out because there was a large low pressure trough lying just west of Cuba over the Gulf of Mexico and extending northeastward into the United States on the morning of the 27th of May. As the plane flew west, the pressure was getting lower and lower. In my research, I was unable to find any specific details about how the Aeroflot altimeter was set, or was not set. The setting was incorrect, but that's all that was reported. 
Did the pilots not reset the altimeter from the previous setting? Did they set it, but set it improperly? Whether they set it incorrectly or didn't reset it from the previous setting, they had no idea that they were too low. And when they descended below the clouds and were staring at the power lines, it had to be a heart-stopping shock. Airplanes are not supposed to hit things at or near an airport. To prevent these occurrences, the FAA, the Federal Aviation Administration, has TERPS, that's T-E-R-P-S, which stands for Terminal Instrument Procedures. Here's the definition from the FAA, quote, Specify the minimum measure of obstacle clearance that is considered by the FAA to supply a satisfactory level of vertical protection from obstructions and are predicated on normal aircraft operations." Unquote. Cindy is one of our air traffic control experts here on the podcast team, and I've asked her to help explain TERPs. Cindy and my wife Tony were air traffic controllers in the Air Force together, and then Cindy went on to a career as a controller in the FAA. Cindy was a terpster, as they were called, or as they still are called. And because of this, I've asked her to provide us with a terps overview related to this accident in 1977. Cindy? Thank you, Dave. With my background in terminal instrument procedures, also known as TERP, the lack of available data for this crash was so perplexing to me. Therefore, I can only provide assumptions based on what I know about TERPs. Who even knows what TERP standards were applied at Havana Airport back in the 1970s? I can share, while operating in the United States, a pilot cleared for an instrument procedure may decide to proceed visually, at which time he then would assume total responsibility for separation of his aircraft from man-made obstacles and terrain. But if the pilot remains on a published procedure, complying with any altitude and course heading requirements, the approach procedure is designed to protect the aircraft from known obstacles and terrain. In pondering the question, would this aircraft have been protected if the pilot had flown the charted procedure? In comparing application with United States TERPs, if the power lines were three quarters of a mile from the threshold and less than 100 feet above the landing threshold elevation and the pilot was ascending on a three degree glide path, it would have been protected. Yet in this accident, one report stated the aircraft was operating at a speed of 280 kilometers per hour at a height of only 23 to 35 meters, which would have placed him approximately 75 feet above the ground when he struck the power lines. That was just way too low, and sadly, it seems he did not realize it until it was too late to recover. In fact, reports indicate that the aircraft was, in fact, at the wrong altitude. Could it be because back in the 70s, the Russian pilot would have had to convert his altimeter standard, known as QFE, to QNH, in which case, at Havana Airport, that would have been a difference of 210 feet. Thanks, Cindy. You know, interestingly, as Tony listened to her longtime friend talk about Terps in Cuba, it reminded her that when in her current position as a Master Mission Advisor at Universal Weather and Aviation in Houston, she and her colleagues typically provide pressure conversion tables to their clients flying into Russia. As Cindy mentioned, the differences between QFE, which is described as the pressure at a nearby airport or field elevation, 
and QNH, which is sea level pressure or nautical height, this is a critical consideration for a crew accustomed to using one system, QNH as an example, over the other, QFE. Let's now take a look at the airport and talk about a little bit of aviation history in Cuba. The Jose Marti International Airport, also known as Havana International, opened for business in 1930. Its four-letter ICAO code is M-U-H-A. The early days for the airport and for Cuban aviation in general were good times. That is before the revolution of 1933. Private aviation was booming and airstrips were popping up all over the island. Under President Machado, in the 1920s, tourism flourished and the building of the new airport was perfectly timed to benefit the economic expansion. Sugar cane was a major crop and industry, and many of the private planes flying to Cuba were American businessmen taking care of their expansive sugar cane fields and other businesses. Of course, being so close to the United States, private air travel to and from Cuba was common. Even Charles Lindbergh visited Havana in 1928, some seven months after his historic solo transatlantic flight. However, when Fidel Castro seized control of Cuba in 1959, private aviation crumbled and eventually, for all practical purposes, came to an end. The hard stop for private Cuban aviation came after the failed Bay of Pigs invasion in 1961. That's when Castro seized all the remaining private aircraft. As anybody who could fly left Cuba for good, the numerous private airstrips were eventually overrun by jungle or agriculture or whatever. If you are a pilot in Cuba today, you fly commercial or military. That's it. All Cuba pilots are trained by and for the military and may wear both hats, military and commercial, at the same time. Or there may be a small group of powered paraglider pilots, but probably not, as a simple extended fuel tank would likely allow a PPG pilot to reach Florida from Cuba. In fact, this happened earlier this year when two Cuban pilots flew a powered hang glider from Cuba to Key West, Florida. Depending on where exactly they took off from, this is a flight of about 100 miles, or 160 kilometers, something easily done by a hang glider or PPG with enough fuel. Commercial aviation, on the other hand, thrived during most of the 20th century. As the decades ticked by, both before Castro's takeover and after, more and more international flights from more and more international locations were landing at Jose Marti. Thanks to its close ties to Russia, beginning after the Bay of Pigs invasion, but especially in the 1970s and 80s, the airport saw continued improvements as more and more Eastern Bloc countries developed scheduled flights to Cuba, including Russia's Aeroflot, plus airlines from Czechoslovakia, East Germany, and Poland. In 1988, the second air terminal was built. Ten years later, the third terminal opened. And today there are five terminals in total, with another terminal for domestic and regional flights, and yet another for cargo and freight. In 2023, the airport is a busy one, with regular service to and from Europe, South America, Canada, Mexico, Russia, and yes, even the United States. The airport sees more than 4 million passengers each year. That said, there is only one runway. 
well, two runways actually. Runway 06 points to the northeast, and runway 24 points to the southwest. So that's two runways, but this is just one 13,000-foot slab of asphalt, or that's about 4,000 meters. In 2017, Jose Marti International was listed as the ninth fastest growing airport in the world, with 5.7 million passengers moving through the airport. The person the airport was named for, Jose Marti, was a famed Cuban patriot, nationalist, and poet who was dedicated to the cause of Cuban independence. He died in 1895. What about the terrain around the airport? We've already talked about terps and how the hazards or obstacles around the airport are charted and monitored, but what about the terrain around the Havana International Airport? Are there mountains or other hazards that need to be considered? Well, apparently power lines need to be considered, and they have been. I checked Google Earth and saw no evidence of power lines at either end of the runway. The Aeroflot crash happened about three-quarters of a mile from the runway threshold, no power lines there or any place in the vicinity. Today, low-profile towers would likely be used for power lines around airports. The lower towers would keep the power lines as low as possible. I've not been able to find anything about the towers involved in this crash, other than that the power lines themselves were between 75 and 90 feet above the ground, or about 23 to 28 meters. Given that power lines were involved in at least one crash at this airport, and that more than 40 years have gone by, I'm not surprised that there are no longer any power lines near the airport runways. And what about nearby mountains? Could nearby mountains have made an approach to the Havana airport more difficult? Well, there are a couple of large hills nearby, one about 900 feet or about 275 meters higher than the runway. And there are two primary mountain ranges in Cuba, one in southeast Cuba, one in northwest Cuba. Neither are an issue for the airport. To confirm this, I looked into the history of the airport to check for any crashes that may have been involved with the mountains, and there are none. Only one crash is attributed to the mountains of Cuba. This occurred in the mountains of the far southern coast of the island in 1934. The Aeroflot airplane involved in the 1977 crash was the Illusion IL-62M, that's IL-62M, pronounced IL-62M. This is a Russian-made, long-range, narrow-body jetliner that first flew in 1963 and then went into commercial service in 1967. It could seat 200 passengers and crew and, at the time, was the largest jetliner in the world. It was the standard long hauler for the Soviet Union and then Russia for decades. The M model, the one involved in this accident, debuted in 1973 with better engines, better flaps and aerodynamics, plus thrust reversers, which allowed the 62M to land on shorter runways. The plane has a somewhat unique engine configuration, a pair of jet engines on either side of the rear of the fuselage four engines in total, two on either side of the tail. Production stopped in 1995, but the plane is still in limited service today. And it has a look that reminds me of a DC-8 or a Boeing 707, though the British Vickers VC-10, which debuted six months earlier than the 62M, is a dead ringer for the Russian plane. Even though the illusion is larger, there were allegations by the British of industrial espionage. 
This was at the height of the Cold War, so why not? It sounds about right. But from a technical standpoint, the two aircraft are pretty different, and no evidence ever surfaced regarding the alleged espionage. This particular airplane came to Aeroflot as a new airplane two years before this crash in 1975. In that time, it had amassed more than 5,500 flight hours, which is on the higher side of average. Judging by today's standard of retiring a commercial airframe at about 55,000 flight hours over the course of 20 to 30 years, Aeroflot was definitely working this airplane. In addition to being a mainstay for the airline, the 62M was also used to transport Russian presidents up until the Brezhnev era and transported other Russian leaders into the Putin era. President Putin, by the way, now flies in Illusion 2-96. I had the chance to walk under and around an IL-62M at the Central Air Force Museum in Monino, Russia, not far from Moscow, a few years ago. Like the museum as a whole, getting to see this airplane was an enjoyable experience. On the heels of talking about the airplane, we should talk about the airline, Aeroflot, and then that should segue nicely, or appropriately, into the crash itself. I'm just going to come out and say it. Aeroflot was not a very safe airline, especially during the Soviet era. Between 1946 and 1989, Aeroflot aircraft were involved in 721 incidents. That's an average of almost 17 incidents per year. In its 100-year history, there have been 8,231 fatalities as of the most recent records on Aeroflot aircraft. Again, most of those occurred during the Soviet era, but that was five times higher than other airlines of the period. However, to fully put that number into perspective, it should be said that Aeroflot was a busy airline. In 1980, they had a record 120 million passengers, as noted by the Guinness Book of World Records. In 2013, a report indicated that five of the ten airlines involved in aviation fatalities were Soviet. Having said all that, Aeroflot, during the past few decades, has turned around their safety record. Between 1992 and 2020, the airline has had 14 incidents. That's an average of just two per year. Five of those 14 incidents included fatalities. We've talked about a lot of things so far, but I want to address the weather situation before we talk about the crash, because the weather situation is weird. And by that I mean, the weather really wasn't bad, yet it factored significantly into this crash. Before we get into the weather, however, I want to explain a couple of things. IFR and VFR, instrument flight rules and visual flight rules. And I want to be clear on this because the crew was faulted for flying visually when they should have been adhering to their IFR flight plan. In a nutshell, flying VFR is much less complicated, much less restrictive than flying IFR. When flying VFR, the pilot is flying by using outside references to steer and locate the aircraft. The pilot may or may not use the instruments inside the aircraft, but when flying VFR, flying by instruments is not required. In fact, certain instruments that are required to fly IFR may not even be present in all aircraft. And if those instruments are missing, it doesn't matter how qualified the pilot is, the aircraft is for VFR flying only. If you're flying VFR, 
You can't fly at night. You can't fly in clouds. Additionally, it's quite common for VFR pilots to navigate by using highways or other reference points on the ground like water towers, rivers, towns, railroad tracks, etc. VFR pilots undergo less training and are not likely professional pilots. IFR-rated pilots can fly VFR, but VFR pilots cannot fly IFR without proper training and additional certifications. There's another aspect of VFR flight that is significant. Air traffic controllers are not providing aircraft separation to aircraft flying VFR. That means the VFR pilot is responsible for keeping his or her aircraft from colliding with other aircraft. The VFR pilot can pretty much fly when and where they want, provided they fly based on the VFR rules set forth by the FAA. And one more thing, for a pilot to attain a private pilot's license in the United States, the pilot must complete some instruction on instruments. This is purely for safety. Should a VFR pilot accidentally end up in IFR conditions, whether it's night or in clouds, the pilot needs to know how to use the plane's instruments to either return to VFR flight or return the aircraft safely to the ground. It's also helpful for a VFR pilot to know how to communicate with air traffic control and IFR pilots. And I think most VFR pilots will agree that VFR communications and IFR communications are almost like two entirely different languages. Now, when flying IFR, the pilot is not looking out the window to navigate but is relying on the plane's instruments as well as on air traffic control. When training for their IFR certification, pilots will train with blacked out glasses or windows so that only the instruments are visible. And I'll say blacked out windows are more common in a simulator rather than on an actual airplane. When flying IFR, everything the IFR pilot does has to be approved by air traffic control. Primarily, this happens by filing an IFR flight plan with air traffic control, which sets forth a specific route, altitude, speed, time, and more. VFR pilots can file a VFR flight plan, but that's considered optional. Okay, now with a basic understanding of VFR and IFR, as well as understanding the difference between a VFR-rated pilot and an IFR-rated pilot, let's swing the conversation back to the weather, because at its core, VFR and IFR are about the weather first, then the capabilities of the pilot and the airplane. VFR weather conditions include cloud ceilings greater than 3,000 feet above the ground and visibility greater than 5 statute miles. These conditions are based on the most recent weather observation recorded by the airport where the aircraft is operating. IFR conditions include ceilings less than 1,000 feet and visibility less than three miles. In between VFR and IFR is MVFR, that's marginal VFR. Under marginal conditions, the ceiling is between 1,000 and 3,000 feet, and the visibility is between three and five miles. And there's one more condition, LIFR, for low IFR conditions. This is for when the ceiling is less than 500 feet and the visibility is less than one mile. These regulations, by the way, are dictated by the FAA in the United States, so the measurements are in feet and miles. These conditions can be converted over to metric. There are 1,600 meters in a mile and about 300 meters in 1,000 feet. 
I'll also add that these are airport conditions. Cloud heights are reported AGL, that's above ground level, and visibility is reported as horizontal visibility rather than vertical visibility or some sort of acute angle up into the sky. That means that these are not the conditions being experienced by the pilot. It's assumed that if a pilot is flying in cloud, the visibility is zero and there's no reference to a cloud ceiling. In other words, if the pilot is flying in clouds, the pilot is referencing only the aircraft's instruments. This is all straightforward and clear as mud, right? And because it is straightforward and clear as mud, that is, I will bring this story back to Cuba and Aeroflot Flight 331. In most of my research of this crash, all I could find online about the weather that morning in Havana was, quote, four miles of visibility in fog with few clouds, unquote. Few clouds is a type of sky classification or sky condition, just like scattered, broken, and overcast. Few clouds is just like it sounds. Fewer clouds than scattered, but it is not a clear sky, and it does not constitute a ceiling. Therefore, thanks only to the restricted visibility due to the fog, the Havana airport that morning on May 27th was classified as MVFR at the time due to the most recent weather observation. I called my friend and forensic meteorologist Joe Spain at Risk Consulting just to verify he couldn't find anything more specific. After all, to find weather data from 46 years ago in communist Cuba, I might need a real expert. Turns out, though, Joe confirmed what I was able to find, but he did add that there were a few towering cumulus clouds, or as it's encoded on the observation, a few TCUs, towering cumulus clouds. In short, the conditions weren't unusual for the early morning hours for an airport experiencing tropical conditions near the ocean in early summer. But this is where it gets interesting, or as I said at the beginning, weird. The aircraft is a commercial jetliner. The crew, professional pilots. All indicators are in place that the plane should be flying IFR. But they weren't. They were flying visual. Commercial aircraft file an IFR flight plan and fly the plane under instrument flight rules. Even Russian aircraft flying under the banner of a Russian airline with a Russian crew flying into a communist airport in 1977. Air traffic control is standardized across the globe so that there is no confusion in either interpreting the regulations or communicating between aircraft and air traffic control. So an IFR flight, flying visual, is weird, or at least unusual. There was another weather item reported as part of the investigation report, quote, a fog bank at 130 feet. This is peculiar. It's not a peculiar weather phenomena, but rather a peculiar way to report it, which leads me to think that a non-aviation professional is the source for this information, perhaps a journalist. But fog is a ground-based phenomenon. Fog at 130 feet is simply a cloud, in this case, stratus. Typically, as temperatures close to the ground cool to the dew point temperature overnight, fog will form. Then, in the morning, the temperatures begin to warm and the fog dissipates. But as the human air reaches cooler temperatures above the ground, the humidity condenses again and a cloud will form. This is how what was a surface-based fog bank becomes a cloud layer at, in this case, 130 feet. 
How expansive this cloud was near the airport was not reported. But remember, the airport was not reporting a ceiling, which indicates that more than half the sky was not covered by clouds. Yet this one cloud stood between the airplane and the runway. Noted in the post-crash investigation, it said that the crew was flying, quote, a visual approach in dense fog, unquote. There was no additional information or follow-up to this, and for me, it only adds a few more questions that I can only speculate about. Let's summarize all the things that led to the crash and point out the peculiarities along the way. First, the altimeter setting. It's been noted that the crew had selected the wrong altimeter setting. This caused the crew to be higher than they thought they were. The pilot descended out of the clouds so he could see the runway, but instead clipped the power lines and crashed. With an altimeter displaying the correct altitude, the pilot would not have descended, would not have clipped the power lines, and would not have crashed. How or why the altimeter was set incorrectly, we don't know. Going back to what Cindy said, had they confused the QFE setting to the QNH setting? Again, field elevation versus nautical height. Then again, if the plane was on a precision ILS approach, the altimeter almost becomes redundant and an incorrect setting can maybe go unnoticed because the instrument landing system is landing or guiding the plane down to the runway. Now, I don't mean that the altimeter can be ignored. It still needs to be set correctly for intercept altitudes and the altitudes needed if there is a missed approach. And on top of that, an ILS glide slope isn't designed to land the airplane at the runway threshold. So an accurate altimeter is needed for the final 200 feet or so down to the pavement of the runway. But this just gives more evidence that the plane was not likely on a precision approach. And here's something interesting regarding the altitude of the airplane. I was able to look at the approach plate for Havana International. Approach plates are the printed or digital approach procedures that pilots use to fly instrument approaches to an airport. In very rough numbers, I made a few equally rough calculations. And remember, I'm a weatherman looking at pilot stuff, but the approach plates indicated that at about three quarters of a mile from the runway, the plane should be at about 300 to 350 feet. Now, that's not 50 feet of variation on the approach procedure. That's me making an estimation of an altitude that's not clearly marked. The plane struck the power lines at just below 100 feet. That we know. We also know, because I just looked it up, that the elevation of the Havana Airport is 210 feet. That's a very rough difference of 200 feet between where the plane should have been and the runway. Or, as Cindy mentioned, the difference between QFE and QNH, field elevation versus nautical height or sea level. This makes a very strong case for the pilot not selecting the proper altimeter standard rather than forgetting to set the altimeter based on the ATIS report or getting sloppy and incorrectly setting the altimeter due to the rushed procedures in the cockpit due to the engine fire. And that brings us to the engine fire. There's been very little information that I could find about the fire. Of everything I read, it's only been stated, quote, the crew declared an engine fire and was attempting an emergency landing, unquote. 
That's it. There is nothing mentioned about when the crew reported the fire. Was it before they made the turn for final? Was it an uncontained fire? Was the fire under control? We do not know. Now, if a crew reports a fire and declares an emergency, air traffic control clears the area of other traffic and gives priority to the emergency so the aircraft can reach the ground as quickly and as safely as possible. Captain Michelle says the crew's responsibility and priority is to, quote, aviate, navigate, communicate, unquote. A fire dictates that the crew get the airplane on the ground as safely as possible, and this may mean that they break from published and regulated procedures to make that happen. Then there's the weather and the weather data. Though the visibility was restricted to four miles, there was no ceiling. These conditions should not have been difficult for a commercial pilot to land in, and the lack of weather data at and around the time of the crash is peculiar. Today, when there is an aircraft incident, there is what's called a data safe. Everything from the weather station is marked to save for the eventual post-crash investigation. The sky condition, the visibility, the wind, the temperature, the altimeter setting, the weather satellite and the radar imagery is also saved. All of it saved by regulation. Now, was this not the case in Cuba or was something else going on? Even Joe from Risk Consulting wondered aloud to me, were the weather observations buried? And what about the comment in the post-crash investigation about flying a visual approach in dense fog? And let's forget for just a moment that dense fog was actually a cloud layer of stratus, but to me and the rest of the podcast team, this makes no sense. Not that a plane or pilots don't do this, they do fly visual approaches, but why? Why were they flying a visual approach? Why did they depart from the IFR flight plan that they'd been flying for 12 hours? The same flight plan that had delivered them from across the Atlantic to just a mile from the runway. Was it because of the engine fire? If flying a visual approach as stated by the investigators, then the crew needs to avoid clouds. Was it so close to the runway that they had to fly through the cloud that was obscuring their view of the runway? Why were they in clouds if flying visually? I asked former U.S. Air Force air traffic controller and podcast team member Tony about this. She said, quote, The crew would have to declare that they were visual or that they wanted to break from the IFR flight plan, but they don't have to say why, unquote. Captain Michelle weighed in on this too. She said there's no way the crew was flying a visual approach. First, the runway has to be in sight, and in this case, and at this time, it was not. They were in clouds. Second, if they were flying visual, they have to stay away from the clouds, and they were in clouds. Today, the regulations state that the crew must have separation of 500 feet below, 1,000 feet above, and 2,000 feet laterally from any cloud or clouds. In 1977, with a Russian airliner in Cuban-controlled airspace, was this the law of the land? I don't know. Lastly, what about a cockpit voice recorder or a flight data recorder? Certainly, this data would reveal a specific sequence of events when the fire started, when the altimeter was set incorrectly, when the emergency was declared, when the pilot turned to final, and much more. Unfortunately, in all of my research, there was no mention of any flight recorder. 
And this is peculiar. It was 1977. Flight recorders were not new to the industry. Most airlines had been using data and voice recorders since the early and middle 1960s, and they were mandated by leading aviation countries in 1967. And now, here we are, 10 years after that, and there's no mention of the data recorders or voice recorders. The history of data recorders in Russia is uncertain, but it is known that Russian fighter aircraft had recorders in the 1950s and the 1960s, so the technology was certainly available. However, were the recorders on board Aeroflot Flight 331? I don't know, but likely yes. And if they were, it appears that the data has not been made public, nor has their existence been mentioned in any public report that I could find. What was likely the case, the flight recorders ended up on one of the first flights back to Moscow, and they probably remain there today. As you can see, all sorts of things are going on here. And as is often the case, a crash is rarely caused by just one mistake. It's usually more than one, and it's usually a series of seemingly minor mistakes that build up to an accident. The incorrect altimeter setting seems to be the major mistake here. Take this out of the equation, and perhaps the plane, even with the engine fire, could have landed safely, if only the crew had known its correct altitude. And let's consider this. Once the turn to final happened early, the crew turned at five miles instead of at eight miles, everything else accelerated quickly. Not the speed of the airplane, but the time before reaching the runway. The checklist, the descent, the communications between the crew members themselves as well as with the air traffic controllers. With fewer seconds and fewer miles before reaching the runway, did the crew lack the discipline to, as Captain Michelle said, aviate, navigate, and communicate quickly? In rushing the plane to the ground, did they take shortcuts? And what about air traffic control? Nothing in my research indicated the role that air traffic control played in this accident. Was air traffic control too slow to respond to the stricken aircraft? If the pilot can't see the runway because of the clouds they were in, it's then up to the controller to vector the plane to the glide path so the plane can land by instruments. But if they were flying visually, as was stated, it's up to the pilot, not ATC, to position the aircraft. And what about the obstacles surrounding this airport? Cindy's summary of Terps was very helpful, so we have to ask, should those power lines have been so close to the runway? Those power lines were just below 100 feet tall and about three quarters of a mile from the runway. They're not there today, so that says something. However, all the mistakes had already been made by the time the plane's tail was severed by the power lines. And to put that 100 feet into perspective, the wingspan of the IL-62M is 140 feet, or about 43 meters. So one wing was just a little bit less length than the height of the power lines. That plane was close to the ground when it hit those cables. In the end, there are a lot of unanswered questions for somebody researching this crash in 2023. The incorrect altimeter setting, the engine fire, the break from standard approach procedures, the break from IFR approach to a visual approach, 
the communication and response from air traffic control, the placement of the power lines near the runway, the MVFR weather conditions, and the cloud that somehow enveloped the Aleutian aircraft. Even the equipment at the airport is a mystery. Was all the ILS equipment installed and functioning properly? And what about that early turn to final? Standard approach says eight to nine miles is when the turn should occur. This crew turned at five miles. There's one more thing to consider. This is not about the weather or the altimeter setting or the type of approach. It's about a communist airline landing at a communist airport in the 1970s. So I wonder what information has been hidden and what about the accuracy of the information released? I don't mean to suggest a big conspiracy. A military crash in the West in the 1970s or even today might have missing or less than perfectly accurate information released. This might be simply a matter of Soviet record keeping. Or maybe I will suggest a conspiracy. Was the incorrectly set altimeter a cover-up for a more blatant pilot error or airline mistake? Sometimes pilots are under intense pressure to maintain schedules at all costs. Was it the airline that insisted the plane land in less than ideal conditions? Or did the airplane not have the needed equipment to land an ILS approach? Or did the pilot not have sufficient training? I could go on. Instead, I'll just say that there are a lot of unanswered questions about a crash that had major problems, all of which were placed squarely on the shoulders of the Aeroflot pilot. That's all for this time on Radar Contact Lost, the podcast. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to learn more about this crash, well, there's not really that much information out there. Most articles are only a couple of paragraphs long, and I couldn't find a single picture for whatever that is worth. However, I found a great video about the Aleutian IL-62 on YouTube. Search for the title IL-62, an ideal option. A side benefit of this video is that it features a fair amount of footage from the Central Air Force Museum in Monono, the same one I visited in 2008. The museum is really great, but the aircraft are out in the open and not protected from the elements. Many of the planes on display are in rough shape. Tires are flat and rotting, missing windows and doors, spider webs, and plenty of bird deposits. The aircraft are literally rotting on the grass. The video is great though, and I really enjoyed the clips of the IL-62 landing on grass, something rather unusual for a large commercial jetliner. I'd like to thank the team here at Radar Contact Lost. The team is a great team because of these talented folks. They help me make this podcast detailed, thorough, and accurate. On the air traffic control side, we have former U.S. Air Force and FAA controllers Cindy and Michael Hintz and Tony Gorham. Once again, Cindy, thank you for your participation in this episode. On the weather side, we have meteorologist Chris Abair and forensic meteorologist Joe Spain from Risk Consulting. On the piloting side, we have former U.S. Air Force and retired FedEx Captain Michelle Acorn and FedEx First Officer Larry Gregory. This series is researched, written, edited, and produced by me. And I'd like to give a special shout out and thank you to Angela Lee, who brought this incident to me so I could create this episode. Thanks, Angela. I appreciate it very much. 
If you liked this episode, please give a like and leave a review and tell your friends. A couple of new reviews were added just before this episode went into production. I appreciate it. Greg and Jay, thank you very much. On Instagram, follow at Radar Contact Lost Podcast. It's the only place where I communicate with the world. I provide behind the scenes, time schedules, interesting factoids, and more. Check it out. We're also on YouTube. If you'd like to reach out, send an email to rclpodcast1 at gmail.com. That's rclpodcast, the number one, at gmail.com. With each new episode of Radar Contact Lost, I will bring you interesting but tragic stories of plane crashes from across the United States and from around the world. When these crashes involve the weather as a possible cause or as a contributing factor, I rely on my 40-year career as an Air Force, broadcast, and commercial meteorologist with a specialty of aviation meteorology to explain what happened and why. I'll also lean on my experts in air traffic control, meteorology, and piloting to peel back the curtain to take a closer look at what really happened. Lastly, let me thank you, the listeners. Radar Contact Lost has now been downloaded in 30 countries. Thank you. I'm very happy to bring these stories to you, to all of you who have a love of weather, aviation, and history just like me. Thanks for climbing aboard and settling in for the latest from the Radar Contact Lost team. I'm Dave Gorham. <laughs>